You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Being able to allow that to be embodied with autonomy, with personal ownership, with education, with choice, with flaunting all of you being accessible and just knowing that you are safe and cared for in that moment. I love the beauty that can come from allowing people to access pride and consent when it comes to their crowning glory. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are challenged to reconsider your normal and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So y'all, if I sound real nasally, it's because I got a sinus infection, so just bear with me. I actually don't feel terrible. Um, I've been trying to do the homeopathic route since before I got COVID back in August, I gave up antibiotics for all right now. <laughs> so I am congested and I want to be able to make it through this winter and not be on the struggle bus. So bear with me if you hear any of that. I am still feeling good and glad to be here. And I want to acknowledge that before I get into anything, that this podcast is recorded on the stolen land of the Susquehannock. Piscataway, Nantigo people native to this area known as Maryland. So this episode feels like really good and different. Um, I was fortunate to be interviewed by Shannon Collins, who Shannon has been on the podcast before. Shannon is a very much beloved member of Pause on the Play the Community and like Y'all, I loved, <laughs> I loved the questions and I loved the fact that I got to just go on my little, you know, follow the white rabbit kinds of, of, you know, like just tracks when it comes to answering the questions and where my brain goes. And it was really a lot of fun to just go and give these, um, you know, really big answers that have a whole bunch of little pieces to them. And y'all, I just took you on a whole journey with this because it, it just, it was, it was so much fun. And the thing that I think I liked the best was that even though we talked a lot about consent 
And Shannon really asked some great questions about, you know, what my opinions are about it, how it showed up. I mean, we went from health to hair to, you know, raising kids or just influencing them as a whole to having been kids, like all of these pieces. And it was just, it was great conversation, which y'all, this is, I, I, lo- I live for great conversation. Like it's, it's such an important thing for me. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Shannon before we get into this. Shannon Collins has been aiming to photograph Joy as a resistance for 13 years as the owner of Shannon Collins Photography. As a non-binary, queer, autistic, and disabled person, Shannon has been educating others during their journey of self-discovery. Shannon is the founder of Euthphoria, a project dedicated to celebrating and photographing trans, non-binary, and gender-expansive youth in the Philadelphia area at no cost. They recently won Best Photographer in Philadelphia Magazine's Best of Philly for this work. Woohoo! I did not. I didn't even realize that was there, y'all. This is what happens when I didn't read the bio till right now because I know Shannon. Oh my gosh. Congratulations for that. Shannon also donates their time as the co-founder and co-host of Rainbow Connections, a monthly virtual meetup for LGBTQIA plus kids and allies, K through five, in partnership with a local library. Shannon lives in the Philadelphia suburbs with their partner and two children. Shannon is an amazing human that I am honored to know. And the fact that I got to be interviewed by this person, you know, that I love when Shannon shows up for calls, like it it just, y'all telling you. And if you would like to be in conversation with Shannon as well, because again, Shannon's a member of the community. Shannon shows up for calls. Shannon um, interacts, asks questions, supports other people. That is something like Shannon is like, how, you know, what can I do for you? They love to be able to do that. And they're just such an amazing person. And just like all of the other amazing people in the group, I would love for you to be able to join us and to be a part of our community conversations, of the screenings that we have, of all of the amazing things that we do in this space in support of evolution, of growing together, of interdependence, of figuring out how we can be better and supporting one another in all of our imperfect allyship efforts, in all of our visibility efforts, in just figuring out how to make it through this thing called life. If you want to be a part of that and all that and more, of course, you can join today by going over to pauseontheplay.com forward slash community. All right, I'm gonna stop talking so y'all can get to this episode. You ready? Let's do this thing. Okay, so I just wanted to say thank you in advance for just trusting me to be in conversation with you about something as personal as the topic of consent. So I am really excited to be here and thank you. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Like I I couldn't think of a better person to do this. And I am I'm excited to be on this side. So like the gift is mine to behold. <laughs> but I'm here and I'm really, I'm really excited. Like so I do your thing. Okay, cool. We're going to go on a journey and cover a bunch of topics. So thank you in advance for opening your brain up, even though it's Monday morning. You're awesome. You're you're welcome. (laughs) So consent. I feel like people usually talk about consent within the framework of like sexual consent, but it applies to like all sorts of other things, everything and everyone. And I feel like it's ongoing and it's potentially changing. 
And it can talk about like our bodies, but it doesn't just pertain to people. I don't feel like it can refer to like bodies of land and water and animals. Like how do you define consent, which I know is an annoyingly big definition question, which you usually do to others. So I can't wait to put you on the hot, <laughs> hot seat. <laughs> I do do that to people. Um, so I I think I want to acknowledge that this is my processing of it right now. The gift and the curse of what I do is that there are certain topics or um, concepts that will come up in conversation um, with, with, with me on my own or with other people that depending on when it is that it's presented to me, like I'm going to have something completely different that, that, mm-hmm. that really comes up for me and feels most pertinent at that moment. And the, the interesting thing that I think is coming up for me right now is that so much of consent is really about choice. It's really about the asking of the question and the waiting for the permission. And it shows up in reference to just about everything. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, how do you feel right now? What conversations are you willing to participate in or be exposed to? Um, what do you want to know about the history of something based on like what can your nervous system take at any given time? Mm-hmm. How much can you absorb right now? Um, and all of these things are also having that awareness for other people. And there's always another layer that that shows up around it. Um, I think it was last week. Or may have been the week before. What is time? Um, <laughs> when we had Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, there were conversations that I was having with my kids and people around me about, you know, what is this? You know, why is it different? Um, what are the things that we are not honoring, a.k.a. fuck Christopher Columbus? Mm-hmm. Um but that also leads into the fact that we're about to be into in, in the holiday season. And so it's like, okay, well, you don't like Thanksgiving because again, that's all a lie. And mm-hmm. it's really about that conversation of, you know, what's happening or what are you thinking or what are you feeling or, you know, what do you feel like you have accessible? What do you need? Um, and being able to talk about the options of things and how it is that, you are consenting to participate in something, but to participate in it on your own terms as well. And I know that like, I've probably gone from one end to the other, but I feel <laughs> like there's, you know, there's the what's right in front of your face, as well as a certain amount of rewriting that those of us are doing daily with what we're experiencing and, and, and feeling and being because we didn't have that option before. And so consent is this thing of like, oh, so I have a choice. So I have an option. Mm-hmm. I can co-create parts of this. And so that in itself like really puts people almost sometimes in this position of like, oh, it's a lot of choices to make. And yeah. it, it sometimes it can be overwhelming. Yeah, I think like you said, like especially if you haven't grown up having felt like you had consent. Um, like as a kid, I felt like I didn't have the option to say no to things. And <sighs> yeah, and I didn't feel like I had the power to say yes and revoke consent. And I feel like, people can be victims of coercion and it's not like 
you know, they can give consent and also be victims in that way. And it's not mutually exclusive. So if you're surrounded by coercion all the time, you can't even see it until you're in an environment where you have access to autonomy. And that's not always accessible to everyone. So like, I don't know, for me, I grew up with like passive aggressive behavior around me. And I felt like browbeaten into certain things as a form of like people pleasing or fawning, which now I know is like trauma response. Um, So I guess I wonder, like, how has your relationship with consent changed over time? Okay, so let's go back to just the fact that so much of what presents as adults now for the majority of us when it comes to consent was implanted as kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And we didn't know. And the adults didn't know either. So let's acknowledge nobody that was in these situations really understood what was happening. I don't know um, of any adults that truly got the concept of like, hey, me forcing you to hug that creepy family member Mm-hmm. is going to completely wreck all of your adult intimate relationships. But I'm going to do it anyway. I don't <laughs> exactly. think that that was what, what happened. And here we are. Like, it shows up. And we we didn't know it was coming. And it took time to even recognize where it came from. And then to not only deprogram it for ourselves, but those of us that are either parents or are in an influential um, dynamic with people that are younger than us. Because I don't think it's just about mm-hmm. children. Honestly, sometimes they're older than us too, or, or like same age peers. But we don't always recognize where we're also deprogramming, where we're a part of it, where we do it to others and we do it to ourselves of like, well, I mean, they were just trying to help. Wait, wait, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> If it didn't feel good, it didn't feel good. Or as somebody that's a parent, like, am I guilting you into eating broccoli? Like, that's a small thing. But, you know, the power dynamics that come up. And, you know, when we really are thinking about it, there is such a fine line that we're trying to, to tote when there is legitimately rules or parameters or this is really what's best for you that that may be coming up as well as honoring people's autonomy like there is a point to where like you know i am trying to guide people around me whether it's again my children or people that i'm in um professional relationships with to be their best selves but i can't make you and Children, please trust me when I tell you that these 43-year-old knees wish that I had treated them better years ago. There's reasons why I'm telling you these things. <laughs> like, I, I am telling you because you will thank me later. But we experienced so much as young people and now as adults. Um, and I read something recently and I feel like I'm going to have to go down a rabbit hole about it. So many <laughs> of us that had to grow up quickly as children still don't feel like adults. We don't always know what it means to now be the adult when we didn't necessarily have uh, functioning, well-adjusted adults modeled for mm-hmm. us. And we are trying to deprogram what we experienced, what we carried, what we no longer want to carry going forward, and understanding that everything that's happening around us is constantly evolving. 
consent is a movable term. Diversity is a movable term. Um, Understanding and respect. There are some things that are not movable, but obviously there are pieces that were not considered before that are considered now. So there's different layers that are being uncovered on a regular basis. And the toughest part is you're trying to fix and be and deprogram and reprogram and seek joy all at the same time. It's a lot. That may or may not have actually answered your question. <laughs> no, I, it did. Because <laughs> I love that you touched on how it's not just about kids. Like I feel like I think about how I do or don't infuse consent into like all of my relationships. And like I think about unsolicited advice and the relationships we have with others. And when people kind of go out of their way to give us advice that we never asked for, it feels like it's one thing to ask someone like, hey, are you open to advice? But then it's another to just like give it without anyone's consent. And that's something I'm trying to be mindful of that I noticed I had been doing. And I'm like, oh, it's so hard when you grow up around it, people telling yeah. you what's best for you. And you're like, oh, wait, I never asked. <laughs> like it just that we exist. Yeah. So um, I feel like we both talked about how we're kind of trying to end cycles around like a lack of autonomy when it comes to co-raising the kids in our lives. So how are you healing your inner child while you're raising kids with like an understanding of consent that you might not have grown up with? Part of it is, and I feel like this is one of the biggest pieces for me, is I, on a daily basis, model imperfection for my kids. And a big chunk of that is if I don't show up in a way that I feel good about or I feel like is the best that I could do for them, you know, at that moment, because best is a sliding scale for all of us. I apologize. Yeah. And I grew up with adults that were like, I ain't apologizing to no kid. I'm the adult. And yeah. I'm the adult that's like, uh, there are times that these the, the these tiny humans are more insightful and and, and got it together more than I do. Mm -hmm. So why the hell would I not apologize? And honestly, what does age have to do with understanding like, hey, I didn't do that right this time. Yeah, like I could have done better. Let me acknowledge that. Like, and I, I think that modeling for them that like I can be like, hey, um, I did not do the best I could there. Uh, and any of the harm that I created, I apologize. And I want you to know that you can tell me if, you know, I hurt your feelings or you feel like I'm not witnessing you and like whatever it is, I'm like, please tell me because that's how I can help you. And part of it is because I can already witness some of the perfectionism that mm -hmm. the programming loves to give us showing up with them. And I'm like, no, I want you to know that like, it's safe to fuck it up. Yeah, It is not, you know, like, obviously there are mistakes of like, some of these, you the, the coming back is a little different, but like you forgot your homework, you spilled a drink. Like these are not fatal flaws. These mm -hmm. are things that we legitimately can come back from. And yet these tend to be the things that we get overwhelmed by the most. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I really try to model for them like, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. I hope that you give yourself grace to not you know, want to be perfect. That's not the expectation. And, you know, I am the parent and I am imperfect. And one of the things that I said to my kids recently 
that felt like one of those kind of aha things that I don't know that we always recognize this. Now, I want to acknowledge that when I when I share this, this is not to make any adult not take accountability mm. if they have less than stellar actions. But um, like my statement to my kids is like, hey, I have my own stuff that I'm trying to navigate and those are my adult problems. And I don't want to give those to you because you're a child and it's those are not the things that you need to carry because you don't need to carry my things for me. And I need you to do your part to make things easier on all of us. There are things that you can do that will make it simpler for yourself in the morning. Put your lunchbox where it needs to be. Leave your water mm-hmm. bottle where, like whatever that is, because then that makes it easier on you. Then that means that you don't bring any of your frustration to me. That means that nobody has to, you know, be uh, redirected if things aren't being done. It's like, let's not create frustration and and upheaval if it doesn't need to exist. Yes. Oh, and that structure is so like preventative and powerful trying. and not something I grew up with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up with it either. And I feel like, like for me, one was the fact of like, hey, this whole adult is a whole adult outside of being this mm-hmm. parental unit or this part of my structure that I don't think was regularly um, addressed. And it doesn't really even get addressed now. And then there's this whole piece of like, hey, I got my own stuff. I don't expect you to take my stuff, but I do need you to not add anything to my plate. (laughs) And that means that you also have to take responsibility for your part in this, as opposed to waiting passively for things to be done for you. This is a unit, which means you play a part in the outcomes here. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's really important for them to learn little by little these ways to be like, you know, self-sufficient and yet part of um, an interdependence with those around them. And so there's all of these little things that come up on a regular basis that I try to use as teachable moments. But it's also like, look, you ain't got to be perfect. I just need to like not raise you to be somebody else's problem. Or to have never even considered these things. And now you're an adult and you're like, why am I supposed to care? Like, right. Let's not get there, please. Ugh. And it's so cool just hearing you say as an adult, like maybe just telling your kids like, oh, I have therapy for this. I don't, you're not my outlet for this. And like, I feel like therapy for me was so villainized as a kid and something just like weak people did. And I know that, I don't know, a lot of people have that experience just growing up with it in that way. So yeah, I think that's that in and of itself where your kids may hear you saying like, I go to therapy and that's cool. And like, maybe they want to go like, it's just so refreshing and powerful. We normalize therapy and mental health in this family. We normalize, you know, things like acknowledging personal space and boundaries. We Mm. acknowledge when we need to calm our nervous systems, when we need to acknowledge if we feel safe or not, when we choose to receive, um, and I have very like huggy, touchy, feely kids, but there's also times when it's like, you don't, Like I asked, these children came out of my body and I'm like, do you want a hug? Like I asked, I asked my own kids, do you want a hug? And that was never modeled. And so all of these types of things, oh, that's, that's normal running to the mill stuff in my house. Mm -hmm. It's just, and then you go out into reality. Like I was at Disney world this week and I was just like, wow, people are just out here forcing their kids on leashes to do things against their consent. And I'm just like, (gasps) wow. And, and our kids are like, wait, that's a thing. Like, (laughs) yes, this is. This is a thing. That part. We are, yeah, we're learning. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like words that keep coming up are like autonomy and 
capacity and control and like checking in and boundaries. And I hear you saying accountability a lot. And that kind of makes me want to shift gears a bit if you're up for it to talk Mm -hmm. about like some heavy, heavier stuff. So um, specifically like in the summer of 2020, I know there was an uptick in a lot of fellow white people showing up in the inboxes of black women to have them kind of serve as like an encyclopedia on racial justice. And I kind of wonder how consent shows up for you as a DEI consultant who may have been met with this assumption of access in the past without people asking you for consent or checking in around your capacity. That's a big question. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, that's no. Actually, actually what it is, is that when it happened then, there was a certain amount of fear that came with it. I'm not going to say it was reverence. It was fear. It was like, I'm going to ask the thing, but I'm afraid to ask the thing, even though I deep down feel like I'm entitled to receive this answer from you. Uh, please don't tell me I'm wrong and then go call me out on social media because I can't handle if you do that to me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like what's happening now is that there is that same energy minus the fear of getting it wrong from some people. There um, there were a lot of people that showed up in 2020 that really just wanted to take, take, take from me and people that you know identified like me. And some of them, it was very performative and like, I'm just going to throw money at this and act like I'm going to do anything, but I'm not actually going to do anything. Or I'm going to show up for it now and I'm going to slowly just kind of mm-hmm. fall off. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that the people that fell off, like they stayed off, like they're not around now. The people that showed up back in 2020, um, or even before, you know, a little bit before that, that understood that like it was a necessity and then was like, uh oh, like everything fell apart. And they're like, yeah, I really need to be more diligent now. The, um, th- they're still in it. Mm-hmm. But there are some people that are showing up in a way right now that does feel like there's some band-aid requests and an assumption that, you know, me or other DEI um, practitioners that happen to be somewhere in the the intersection of of being Black, um, of just not identifying as mainstream white man, white woman, cisgendered, heteronormative, because um, again, there's a lot of in- intersectionality there and there's a lot of extra layers with that, but a lot of us, like, it's this thing of like, okay, so if you show up, that somehow helps me. Or if you show up, then that's enough. And I don't have to, I don't have to do the work to make sure that I am not inviting you into a cesspool. Mm. I don't have to pay attention to whether or not I am inviting you into a space that is safe and considerate of you being here in a teaching and coaching and supportive capacity. And that is really, really hard to be this person that is asked to receive the transgression, heal the transgression, and smile while I'm doing it. Because, oh, if I'm giving you money, that makes it fine, right? Mm -hmm. It's not how that works. And so there's not enough consent to be able to truly acknowledge like, hey, you want this help you're not ready to receive this help and you Mm. need to go do something different and people be willing to receive that because there's this fallacy that 
this desire to do better is enough. There's this fallacy that being at an intersection of having a uh, underserved or marginalized identity is enough. And it's not. It's not. And so, you know, do I have the consent to acknowledge when, you know, I'm hurt or I'm, I've been harmed? Like, can I do that as a service provider and somebody receive that from me? Or am I, am, am, am I not, you know, tough enough? Have I not, you know, dealt with it enough? And it's like, Do y'all realize that y'all came and dumped all of your emotions on us and wanted us to help you fix them? Now, there's varying degrees of that. Like, I mean, I've now literally had people show up in tears with me, Um, Mm -hmm. which I have no problem. Like the the part of me that likes to care for people, likes to care for people that want to be cared for and are not seeking for me to be their quick fix. But there are some people that absolutely show up with a lot of baggage. And it's like, I'm not here to take this from you. Like, you still have to do your own emotional labor. But there's almost like, can you be, you know, this living expert in something and still be able to navigate your own hurt and emotions and, and trauma in this? Because that's where I feel like I don't know that professionals get the space to have consent when it comes to their emotions and how they feel and how they're processing when they're paid for something. It's like money means all of it's supposed to go away. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain, but I'm like, y'all, there are people that can absolutely do better at owning their process and not assuming that their process is for us to process. Yes. And it feels like there was a lot of like manipulation happening with like white women using tears and like overblown emotional reactions and redirecting things to like white fragility in air quotes. Uh, And like, meanwhile, misdirecting attention away from conversations about their own racism. And I cannot even imagine what that was like to be in a room with that. And yeah. And I'll be honest, like I, in the big scheme of things, um, I have been fortunate that I've had more people that I believe really did want to be a part of the fix and solutions. But that doesn't mean that just because it's minimal in comparison that it still can't be harmful to come in contact with this lack of consideration, this lack of understanding, especially being that like this is not a space that is like, there's no formula for what I do, mm-hmm. you know, and it requires a level of, you know, disarming uh, transparency that I don't know that some people are willing to do mm-hmm. out loud, you know? And so like in the big scheme of things, like I've dealt with much more good than bad, but that doesn't mean that the bad was okay. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, and obviously, obviously I have hope. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't do what I do. <laughs> I'd just be like, ah, it's a lost cause. I'm out of here. I wouldn't do it. Um, and I'm still human and it still is hard. And I still have my over uh, overthinking um, perfectionist brain that I'm deprogramming of like, you know, did I do enough? Did I try hard enough? You know, was it, was it, you know, more that I could have done to have fixed this for somebody else and whatever. And I'm like, I can't carry everybody's Mm -hmm. shit. 
Yeah, that's a lot of pressure to put on you. It makes me think of like silence as a form of consent and some of the things you may have been subjected to in maybe like group settings and like bystanders come to mind. Like just, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I'm over here just flailing my arms, shaking them. It's fine. But but you know what's funny? Like I do feel like the silence, the silence is a big thing. And the challenge is that there are there's the silence from those that are witnessing it. And there's the silence that comes from those of us that are receiving it because mm-hmm. there, there have absolutely been times where I want to be like, huh, I, who, who are you talking to? Like, no, hard stop. No. And that genetic survival instinct of Mm-mm, you might die. If you say something that is from generations ago will come up and clam you up sometimes. And it's hard. Yes. And it's that hard. kind of leads me to my next question. If you're into it, I don't know. I was going to ramble a little bit, but I don't want to <laughs> uh, No, I like when you ramble and you know that. Okay. I'm long for it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It, like, it kind of makes me think about like the medical industrial complex and the power dynamics within it. And I know it's like it it can all industrial complexes we can talk about in the same way. But I think like the medical industry specifically, it brings up for me a lot of like complicated feelings, like for the births of our two children, like with our first child, the midwives wanted me to be induced early because I had high blood pressure in the office. And I knew that it was an issue only due to like white coat hypertension for me. I would go home, it would be fine. I was just super anxious in the doctor setting. And so I had to advocate for myself and sign papers saying that I didn't consent to an early induction. And I didn't know I could even do that without having the education provided by a doula who helped me just like navigate the entire system. And I was privileged enough to be able to pay out of pocket for those services. And then with my second birth, I kind of was able to go into it knowing that it was going to happen again. I was going to have anxiety in a medical environment, but that time I could like prepare mentally for an induction. And after our second kid was born, the midwife was like, oh, if you have a third child, you don't even need to be induced because you do have white coat, white coat hypertension, which was just like, fuck. <laughs> I felt so unheard, but right. I still had so many privileges that I was able to navigate that. And I feel like things like having the time and capacity to create like a birth plan or pay, pay for doulas and be heard and respected in a medical setting is not something everyone is afforded and not everyone can control their treatment in the way that I was able to do. Um, And so it makes me think about hierarchies and wonder who do you think gets access to consent and is it a privilege? Even though I know that you're probably being like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear your longer winded version of yes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Cause you know, I'm gonna be long winded. Um, Please. And and I just I also just want to say thank you because you're asking me these questions and I know that I may or may not be giving the direct answers to these. And ever since I did the podcast episode that I recorded with Tara McMullen a couple months mm. back, I it's been stuck in my brain <laughs> this whole piece of like my non-linear way of thinking and processing has always felt like a liability. And Mm -hmm. to be in conversation with people that don't take that away from me and actually find the value in it and can follow me on my little like (laughs) nonlinear paths when I go through them. And so good. Like, I'm like, like that means (laughs) a lot. And me being able to show up as myself in that way, as opposed to trying to packageify myself and one, two, threeify myself. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm like, join us on the neurodivergent train. I'm like, yes, tangents. Oh. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, I'm here. I will. I will. Ooh, shiny object in a heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, I've just discovered that like anyone who I enjoy is either trans or neurodivergent or both. So I'm just going to assume that hopefully maybe one day you'll be like, oh, I have ADHD. And I'll be like, yes. I'm going to tell you, I probably have a whole lot of things. And and, uh, (laughs) to be totally honest, the only and I don't say that as like, oh, everybody had like, I'm not going to do that. But legitimately, I, I feel pretty confident that there's things going on and I still have my own issues with the stigma of being diagnosed with something. Mm, Totally. If yeah. if I were to go through, like, I hate to say, like, it's like a, you know, take the quiz online kind of thing, but legitimately, oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, that's it is. What I did. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, it's there. It's all there. And I think there's so, there's so much beauty there. And I often can deny myself of that. So, an opportunity to be able to just really show up in all of my, like, mm, here you go. Like, I am like, really it's appreciating so this. It's so rich and it makes me happy and I'm smiling. My face hurts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> All right. Let me go back. Okay. So okay, sorry. <laughs> no, nothing to apologize for. Okay. So <laughs> I do think that consent is a privilege and that, that, that was the question, right? The, yeah, the part of the question. Who gets access to it and is it a privilege? Yes. <sighs> I think who gets privilege to it, who gets access to it, being that it is a privilege, it really depends on what areas. So I want to acknowledge that there are areas that we are given more of the illusion or short-ended access to consent, because if we had none of it, then we would have some anarchy. So, you know, like, what do you want to eat today? Like, there are things like that that we'll have access to. Um, Also acknowledging that even that is something that really is based on class and location, um, socioeconomic stat. Like, there's a lot of pieces of that as well. And I think that there are certain pieces of consent when it comes to the education that you have access to, where you live, the types of um, jobs you can hold, the types of careers you feel like you have access to, whether you work for someone else or you're self-employed, um, uh, healthcare, um, safety. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I think there's a lot of things um, that show up with that that you don't even think about not having access to it because it doesn't show up on your radar. And mm-hmm. so like, and so it, because it, it, what came up for me was when you were talking about, you know, all of the options that can come up when you are considering what birth will be for you. And acknowledging that that can be different every time you do it. It is not like a static thing like, oh, I had three and it was the same every time. It's not necessarily how that works. But I, both of my kids, when I had them, I didn't consider a home birth because for me, it felt like, I don't know what that is. I don't know that I want to sit in this water with all this stuff coming up out. I don't, I'm good. Like in my head, that was what I thought about it. I was like, that seems weird. I don't want to do that. (laughs) And I don't know that I trust doing it at home because what Mm -hmm. if something goes wrong? Now, 
you fast forward, then you're like, wait, but black women die in the hospital because they don't trust when we say we're in pain and we need something. I mean, I Mm -hmm. remember literally having them not bring me my son and they were trying to almost shame me because he wasn't nursing enough. But I'm like, but you keep taking them for long stretches and you'll keep him all night. So of course he's not going to nurse. I don't get a chance for him to actually make my boobs do what they need to do because he's signaling to them something needs to happen. And nobody until the last day that I left was like, Hey, you should have been pumping even if you didn't have them. And I'm guessing no one told you. I was like, Nope, Mm -hmm. no one told me that. And so, you know, I made it home with my children. I was healthy. They were healthy. Now, pregnancies were not fun for me. Like they were, were, were very, very challenging and I was sick the entire time. Um, but we all made it home and some people don't have that. Mm-hmm. There are people that, you know, nursing never becomes an option because of a lack of information or a lack of knowledgeable professionals to be able to tell you what you need to when it comes to um, breastfeeding, but also when things like being tongue-tied comes up. I don't, I don't know what the medical term for mm-hmm. that is, and my great apologies if that is an ableist term, y'all. I don't. I apologize. I don't know what the <laughs> right thing is for that. But when a child's tongue is still attached at the bottom and they can't latch, um, if nobody tells you, you don't know. And so part of it is like, where's the omission coming up that not only can I not consent, but like, I don't have the information that I need to, to make the best decisions. I can't make good decisions if I'm not adequately prepared. Right. So there's Mm -hmm. all of these things that come up when it's, it's, you know, where does class show up? to not give you certain access, where does um, lack of information and and qualified individuals to to support you in in educating you, when does that show up with it? And so when we think about consent and choice, these are not terms that are in a vacuum. You can't truly consent to something that you don't understand. I mean, there's always a yes Mm -hmm. and no. Hard stop on that. But if you don't understand, you don't understand. And it's not it's not appropriate to want someone to advocate for themselves fully when it comes to, let's say, their medical treatment. When you haven't given them all the information, they're not going to be able to make the best choice for them. And that's not that's not okay. It's not fair. And I know fair feels like, oh, it's not fair, but it's not. Right. It's not okay. It's not, it's not equitable. Mm -hmm. That makes me, so I'm going to go on a tangent that's kind of unrelated to medical stuff. So I'm sorry if you're like, your brain is super sparkly today, Shannon. (laughs) No, because honestly, the, and you, you tell me if you agree, I'm actually really curious. I feel like the medical piece is, it's an example or, or um, a parable for like, this could be how many different things. It's just a really good example of it. Yeah. And you were you were saying something that made me think about like, okay, so yeah, random, but the new Dahmer series on Netflix. It's like one of the most watched series on Netflix right now. <sighs> oh, I feel the a creator, whole lot of about that. I know. And it's like Ryan Murphy made it and we want to love Ryan Murphy because we like Pose, but like they didn't get consent from the victim's families and they weren't even informed <sighs> that it was being made, let alone that like their trauma was going to be dramatized for profit. So Right. And people might be like, oh, it's public record. Ryan Murphy didn't need to notify families when he made it, but like 
on a smaller, smaller scale. It makes me think of being a photographer and other photographers will say stuff like, oh, I own the rights to these photos. I'll be posting them on social media, even though the clients have asked me not to for their own privacy. Like, I don't ever want to feel like I have ownership over another individual. And it comes up constantly. And yeah, it makes me feel sick to like open up Netflix and see that as the main thing on the screen promoting it. And it's just like, there's no consent there, but it just feels like we're looking at like a magic eye and we're like, it's so hard to adjust our eyes and see all these things happening that are not consent. And it's just like, once you see it, you're like, fuck, it's everywhere. So, okay. So now, now I think I'm going to, I'm going to one up your, where you feel like you're on a tangent. I'm going to give you a whole nother tangent. Um, (laughs) So I started watching the kind of redo of interview with the vampire on AMC. And it is outstanding, by the way, for anyone that has not witnessed it. And I absolutely love the fact that they have brought in race and gender and um, like gender roles and the relationships. Like there's so much, there's so much. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that I think it was something that was said in the show that really feels pertinent here. And there was a point when, you know, the two main characters are having a conversation and one is like, you know, I don't want to just kill people. It's indiscriminately. What if we just kill off the worst of them? And, you know, then we can get rid of the degenerates, you know, and the other characters are like, so what if we happen upon a murderer planting a flower bed? Do we wait until he kills again? Like, what do you like? There's holes in where you're going with this. And, you know, there's a kind of this back and forwards and one of them says to the other, but you know, but you appreciate, you know, the, the artists and the poets and the musicians, like you find redeeming qualities in them. And he's like, yes. And anybody can be capable of debauchery at any given moment. And so just because you're a genius in this one area doesn't all of a sudden mean that like you're one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that shows up here because we can put people in movies and music and media on a pedestal. And as somebody that loved American horror story, absolutely loved Pose, I've enjoyed Ryan Murphy and what he creates. Like, the things that they put out have has been amazing. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed Evan Peters, and I'm like, dude, you mm-hmm. played this role, oh, and then I feel yeah. a way about it because I understand who didn't have an option in the consent, but also who bears the weight of the re-traumatization of all of this. And we're also not even considering the trauma that could be happening of people that are like, oh, wait, so this white man was killing black and brown gay men and just doing this, like, oh my God, what do I need to be afraid of if I'm a gay man right now? Should I be afraid of this? Are y'all going to bring this back up? We're going to have a revival. I can (laughs) understand how even somebody that maybe didn't go through it, then you can also bring up and recreate trauma with it. Like, oh my, oh, 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 no, no, no. And all it does is reinforce that people think of you as less than and that you are disposable. And there's so much that goes with that. And so I don't think that anybody that had anything to do with it from 
you know, the platform of Netflix all the way through to, you know, actors and anyone that had anything to do with it. I don't think that any of those people are good or bad when it Mm -hmm. comes to it. Now you have to take the ownership of what was done and then you get the complicated piece of realizing that like, you know, one of the other characters was a black woman. And it's like, but this black woman also got her money from this large scale production. And so it's like, y'all, there's a lot of layers here and this is messy. Why? There's a lot of pieces. And so I think it's really challenging to have to go through and we live in such a black and white binary, good or bad type of space. But like, you know, I, I get the whole like, yeah, we wanted to, to to tell the story, but it's like, can we stop glorifying the murderers? Mm-hmm. And like, are we going to talk about, you know, the people that are still here? Like, what happens next? Like, how do you come back from that? But like, I don't think that just because like Ryan Murphy Ray posed that he, he apparently didn't make a good choice here, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like. It's traumatizing. I have not, I don't want to watch it. I'm good. I didn't want to watch it anyway, but then to realize all of the other pieces to it. Um, no. And I think this is where <sighs> there is no perfection for anybody. And these people that we're putting up on a pedestal, we can't put them there. There's a, there's somebody in the media. I am not even going to say this person's name, but they are out here saying all kind of trash and foolishness out of their mouth right now. Mental health is actually showing up for them. And that does not all of a sudden erase what they're saying. Mm. Um, and too many people are still giving them a platform. Mm. Stop. Like yeah. there is a point that we have to take accountability for what we amplify. Yeah. I think I just watched a piece from Trevor Noah. It was like a little real, just kind of talking about per- perhaps that person. And it was really lovely just saying like, why are we putting microphone in front of people's faces when they're clearly struggling and suffering and have said so? And yeah, why are we, why is that entertainment? Right. And so this is where, you know, again, why is a story about this person that took human life via murder and cannibalism why is this what we are using as entertainment? But I mean, that's a whole nother rabbit hole of like, why is true crime so so popular? <laughs> I don't I don't know. There's enough trauma in life. I don't know that I and I say this as a person who watched Squid Games and and <laughs> <laughs> y'all, there's no perfection here. But I, I just, you know, I just think that when we have things like this that happen, it's just so important to make sure that the conversation is addressing what it is at that moment and not positioning people to be infallible because of the best or worst that they've done as if that is the only defining factors in their entire existence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ah, I want to respect your time and spoons and capacity and all those words. So I have another question, but only if you feel like you have more in you I right now because it. it's been I'm, a lot. Okay. <laughs> I am loving this and I'm loving where it's going. And, and honestly, I, I appreciate being able to have these little pop culture things that I can pull in as a part of it because we sometimes underestimate how important that is in impacting the way that we perceive and process uh, how yeah. we think and feel about ourselves and, and what's, you know, w- what we think about other people. 
Mm-hmm. I like pop culture and like it's one of my special interests. So this kind of relates. So I was going to kind of chat about like some of the incredible books out there about hair and consent in the black community. Um, yes. I'm thinking about like Phoebe Robinson's book, You Can't Touch My Hair. There's also a children's book called Don't Touch My Hair by Cherie Miller. So I think about power and how it comes into play around consent and shows up in the hair salon. And I know clients are often trusting you with something deep and personal like their hair. And so I just wanted to know what it's been like working in the beauty industry as the founder of Silver Immersion while seeing all the ways consent does or doesn't show up with clients. I love the fact that it is a conscious part of the conversation now. Mm -hmm. There was a video that I was sharing um, through the DMs with friends um, over the weekend of um, Khalees. Like she's, for anyone that does not, no, Khalees, my gosh, please get under, get out from under your rock. But Khalees, you know, is, has been in the music industry for forever, but she's also a very accomplished chef and she's got a lot of social media presence. And it was an image uh, of, I think it was like a reel that was posted from her in, I believe it was Singapore. And these two women just came up and just started pulling at her hair. And I was like, the hell? We just walking up to people and she turned around and touched the other woman's hair. And she still, the, the woman still didn't let go of her hair. I was mm. like, so, so because we were property, you think I still am and you can just touch me? That's not how that goes. Right. And for the longest time, we did not have the autonomy to give or revoke consent when it came to our bodies. And our hair is part of our bodies. I mean, we were literally told to wrap it up and put it under scarves because there were white women that didn't like how their men, their white men looked at us as if we had any say in it. Like we, we weren't, you know, somebody that was trying to entice them. Like we were still property at that point. And yet the ownership was put on us to hide and Mm -hmm. put it away as if just by our very nature of existing, we were the problem. And So consent of our bodies, including our hair, just didn't come up. It was never part of the conversation. And it began to be more of a part of the conversation with us first of what do I want to do with my hair? Like there is this internal um, conflict of am I doing what I am told to do with my hair or am I consenting to do what I choose to do with my hair? Part of it is just what you want as a human, but it's also, you know, the personal and professional spaces that I'm showing up, the life spaces as a whole, you are consenting to being you, but also having no consent in how people process you. And I think that's why for Black women, it's been such an ongoing journey that sometimes can feel like, you know, you move forward three spaces and then you move back four. Uh, because there's 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 just so many layers with it. A- and at the same time, just the fact that the conversation exists, regardless of where it goes, regardless of what is done with it, I appreciate the existence of it. I appreciate finding more articles that are acknowledging that uh, health does come up when it is finally being addressed that things like uterine cancer is showing up in higher rates 
in Black women because of relaxers. Hmm. This for years was never a part of the conversation. It just didn't come up. And so having that information come up to be a part of that process of consent is important. Having it come up that you cannot legally discriminate against me based on the way my hair is styled and or its natural texture or the way that I chose to texture it. Um, that doesn't mean that it still won't happen, which is why I want to be very specific mm-hmm. and like legally it's not supposed to happen. That doesn't mean that it doesn't or it won't happen. It's not supposed to. But the fact that there are active conversations about how our hair is a part of the way that we present and are processed in the world. And more importantly, how we are processed within ourselves, how we show up in interpersonal relationships, the pride that we feel like we have access to or the denial of uh, being able to hold dear when it comes to our appearance and, and therefore the way that we move figuratively Mm -hmm. and literally like there's, Uh, you know, I mean, years ago when I started doing hair, there was just like, oh, you do hair. Like there was this minimizing of it. I remember um, I used to work in a great clips and someone came in and sat in my chair one day and they're like, oh, are you doing this to put yourself through college? And I was like, no, I do hair because I like to do hair. This is what I do. And they they, they were like, oh, Hmm. I was like, do you realize I have sharp objects in my hand? But I (laughs) And so, you know, it, it was minimized. But what I do is so much bigger than that. And I say what I do is be, because this is something that I'm always going to carry dearly with me, regardless of whether or not it's done professionally or not. But mm-hmm. having my hands literally on the pulse of how someone uh, processes themselves, feels about themselves, shows up in life, how they are able to be this version of themselves forward facing and how it helps them to connect with the internal version. This is such a prideful and strong thing that I think is, is, is humongous. There is therapy that shows up in what I do. There Mm -hmm. is, is, is dynamic conversation of owning who someone is, where they've been, what they're going through, what their reality is, a, a laying down of, of emotions and how they feel and, there is a transparency and a, a, you know, kind of sisterhood or just this bond, regardless of, of gender here, that comes up when somebody comes and, and, and they're in this chair in front of you. And this could be at home. It could be in a salon. And they look at you to help take care of them in this moment. And there is this connection that you just can't bottle. And being able to allow that to be embodied with autonomy, with personal ownership, with arm, you know, being armed with education, with choice, with flaunting all of you being accessible and just knowing that you are safe and cared for in that moment. I love the beauty that can come from allowing people to access pride and consent when it comes to their crowning glory. That was so beautiful. Are you kidding me right now? (laughs) (laughs) 
I love hair, y'all. I love <sighs> this is an industry that is so problematic. And I'm like, baby, I'm not gonna let you go, but we're gonna have to work on this. Because <laughs> it's, there's so much. I mean, honestly, even Shannon, when I witnessed like you cut your hair and it was like, mm-hmm. oh no, this, what I have right now, this feels like me. Yeah. And so there's, euphoric and firm power. That's power. Yeah, I felt like I was unmasking. I don't know. I felt like once I realized I was autistic, I was able to like unmask. And I realized my mask was like feminine and I'm not feminine inside. So like it was just a weird exploration and hair had so much to do with it. So you are doing so much important work when you're in the salon. So and when you're out of the salon, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I I, and, And for those that didn't like when you cut your hair, I was like, ooh. I like the haircut. That's cute. I like, oh, do that. Do that thing. Oh. <laughs> How did this end with me getting hair compliments? I love this for me. <laughs> I love it for you too. <laughs> I feel so special. You are special. You're special too. Look, we're like Mr. Rogers. I love us. <laughs> I love us. <laughs> I'm going to try to wrap it up in true Erica fashion and ask you, what is one action that listeners can take surrounding the topic of consent? Dun, dun, dun. I would love for people to consider <laughs> the large, small, and otherwise ignored aspects of consent and the way that it weaves itself into our lives on a daily basis and where it is that you can not only take more ownership for yourself, but hold and facilitate more space for others to do that that may not feel like they have access to it in the way that you do. Mm, That's incredible. Hell yes. Lots of arm flailing happening over here. Ah! I'm just so excited that you had me, by the way. And I I don't know if I'm allowed to thank you right now or if there's other important things that are supposed to happen. But I just want to say thank you for having me. I'm going (laughs) to say thank you for taking the time to go with me on all of these tangents to invite me on yours. This was absolutely outstanding. That was so good. (laughs) I love good. Like uh, seriously, it's like a salve for my soul. Good conversation is just something that fills me. And there's been a lot of life happening around me. I'm very fortunate that I've had some beautiful, amazing things happening for me. And I'm also witnessing some evolutionary and maybe not as beautiful things happening for others around me. And these are all parts, the good, the bad, the the great, the not so great. And all of these things are so important to be able to hold space for. And so when I hold space for others and I'm able to have moments like this, that my cup can be refilled, this felt so good. And I appreciate that you all are able to witness this, whether it is that you are listening to the podcast or reading the show notes um, that accompany it so that you can have that article as a way of not only just reading a transcript, but getting the context showing up for you. I am glad for this being able to refill my cup. And I hope that it was possibly able to do the same for you or remind you that refilling your cup is something that you can do as well. So every time that you show up here witnessing us having real conversations in order to normalize the challenging things while making them a part of our everyday exchanges, I thank you.
Together, this is how we remove stigma and create real change and connection. Together, we can cross lines and recreate boundaries to support, not separate. Let's continue getting more people dropping the veil to challenge their thoughts, feelings, actions, and state of being. So till the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?